Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. So why don't you pray with me? We'll pray for that in our time in Scripture, and then the Boyds are going to come and read our passage this morning. So Father, we pray right now giving you thanks for the unity that exists in the body of Christ. I'm thankful for JP and for his church who would open wide their doors to bless us, to give us the opportunity to meet together and Jesus to worship you tonight. And so, Father, we're thankful. It is not lost on us. What a unique thing that is in the midst of a tumultuous era of division that there's unity that is in such stark contrast and so very beautiful. So God bless this church. Their success is ours because, Jesus, we are about your kingdom, not about building our own empire. And so we pray for your great blessing on this place and decades more of continued ministry in the lives of this local community. Father, we pray for our own church family and the unique expression that we do have of your kingdom, that you would lead us. We are open-handed because we do not see ourselves as the one who own anything. We are stewards of your resources, and Jesus, you are the chief shepherd of this flock. So we're asking that you would lead us and give us wisdom, and God, show us the way that we should walk. Father, for as long as we are at Painted Rock Elementary School, use us, Jesus, to represent you and for them to experience your fingerprints all over their lives through us. And then, Father, as we open Scripture right now, we're praying for your blessing on it. Father, we believe that this book still actively speaks, and today, the way that it speaks to us, I pray, would reach beneath the surface and into our hearts, and that it would address things, maybe even that are unseen to anyone else. Father, thank you for this book that you have miraculously preserved for us so that we might know you intimately and personally. And so we pray that you'd open it to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So Luke chapter 24 is where we're going to be. And the Boyds are going to read this passage to you. Uh, Luke 24, 13 through 35. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, uh, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was, while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as, as you walk and are sad? Then one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem and have you not known the things which happened here in these last days? And he said to them, what things? So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Instead, uh, indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things have happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found, found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures and the things concerning himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther. And they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and that day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, and he, and as he sat at the table with them, and he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and they vanished from their, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while we, he, while he talked with us on the road, and while he opened up the scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with him and gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Thank you, guys. 
You know, it was in March of 1801 that Thomas Jefferson became our third president. He's an interesting guy. I don't know if you know much about him, but he had his a hobby and side work, archaeology, as well as architecture, was a part of his skill set. Uh, he was a wine aficionado and kind of an ancient foodie. I guess not ancient isn't fair, but an old foodie before it was even trendy. In fact, you can find some of his handwritten recipes of his favorite foods, including his favorite ice cream recipe, if you just Google it on the internet. He was also an avid reader and a deep thinker. And in social circles, he found himself surrounded by a group of people who were referred to as the Enlightenment Deists. They believed that man had gotten to the point where we are so enlightened that we understood all the parameters that everything that happened within creation or within the world, everything followed those sets of rules within those parameters. Everything had to function that way, including God himself. And because of that, he drew the conclusion that God's not capable of doing something that would, would happen or function outside of the laws that we've come to understand in the Enlightenment period. So there's no such thing then as a miracle. And so Jefferson is an older man. He would set out to write, or I'm sorry, I shouldn't say write, but, but to edit and compile a more accurate gospel. And so with a razor blade, he took to his Bible and would cut out every passage that included a teaching of Jesus, but leaving behind the miracles of Jesus. And then in an empty notepad, he would glue together all of the teachings of Jesus to piece together what he said was, quote unquote, a more accurate account of the gospel of Jesus. He called his more accurate gospel the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. And if you reach the end of the story, from this more accurate version, he would call it, it ends with this statement on page 168. And I quote, There laid they Jesus, and rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher, and departed. The end. Can you imagine if the story of Jesus ended there? Can you imagine the, the, the detention, the, the despair, the hopelessness we would all have experienced? In fact, it's the feelings that we just read these individuals walking along the road to Emmaus are feeling in this moment. What we discovered are two people, early followers of Jesus, who on the day that Jesus would rise from the dead have already left Jerusalem and are headed out seven miles towards Emmaus on that road. And as they walk, they're full of the despair that you and I would feel if that's how the story ended, that a rock was placed there and his body was left there. And that was the end of the life and the story of Jesus. In fact, in the story we just read of these two people, they're sad and they're shocked. And the thing that they're shocked about is how is it possible that someone doesn't know what just took place? In fact, did you catch what it says there in verse 19 where they said, Jesus of Nazareth, who was the prophet... Did you catch that? He was. Past tense, he's gone. How are you ignorant? How have you not heard? The one that we trusted in, the one who had done all of these things, he's gone, he's dead, it's over, we're leaving. They're living with a, a sunken feeling, with a defeat and a despair. Verse 21, it gives you a bit of insight into their minds when they said, but we were hoping we had hoped that he would be the one. But now their hope is gone because closing the tomb was like the final chapter being written across the last sentence, the final period, at the end of the final statement at that last chapter, period, the tomb, it was closed. And all of their hope was closed in with it, buried with Jesus. This was to them the end of the story. You know the story, and it wasn't that at all, was it? It's not the end of the story. For us as a church, having just wrapped up a long journey of 53 weeks trudging through Mark's gospel, we're now going to spend a couple of weeks, four of them in fact, talking about the rest of the story or how it all plays out after that. Really, we're answering the question of, well, what happens next? Because you might remember Mark's gospel ends rather abruptly with them finding the empty tomb and being told that Jesus is risen and us being left in the tension of how will we respond then to the reality and promise of a risen Savior. But it doesn't give us the details of what takes place immediately on the heels of that. 
But we will take the time for the next four weeks to introduce ourselves to those details. And in doing so, what we're going to find is that God continues his work. Though no longer through the body of Jesus of Nazareth, he's now going to continue his work on the earth through the body of Christ, the church. And so we'll take the time to look at Jesus' final encounters and instructions as we talk about God's continued work in creation, but then we're also going to break away from these encounters to talk about what God was developing in these moments in this new era called the church age, and a piece of that will be us talking about what God is developing in us as a church, specifically here at Olive Branch. Now, many of you know for us, our church was planted just over 10 years ago. I think it's been 11 and a half years ago. And when that new work began here locally, the name Olive Branch was attached to it. Olive Branch, your mind should go back all the way to early in Genesis, where it records the first mention of an olive branch. You remember Noah is on the ark and he sends out a raven to go and see if the waters are receding and if the judgment of God had passed and if they had been spared and if life would begin again. And you remember that the bird came back with just that in his mouth, an olive branch. It became an idiom throughout the ages, the extending of an olive branch. It became an expression that means to offer peace and reconciliation. An olive branch. In that moment on the ark, humanity needed the mercy of God to be extended again. Heaven itself would extend, in a sense, the olive branch towards humanity, would make an offer of peace in place of judgment, of grace and love that was undeserved, of reconciliation that could not be, could not be earned at all by anyone. And for us as a church, we want to be an extension of heaven's peace. It's of its grace and and of heaven's love and, and reconciliation for a broken world. And we do that. We become an extension of that by introducing creation, by introducing society, by introducing people to the branch. You see, the branch was not just a thing that God extended from heaven. It would become the person that heaven itself would embody when it came down to the earth. You see, the story follows of the olive branch to the ancient prophet Zechariah. And Zechariah is this prophet in the Old Testament who arrived to encourage the people of God to continue to build the house of God, specifically reminding them of the necessity of a temple for God to dwell among them. He's not just merely constructing a building, they're building a future for humanity because they're constructing a place together where Messiah would come, Jesus himself, the person would arrive and reveal himself to the world as the prophets foretold. And Zechariah, he begins to prophesy something that would have a dual fulfillment, both a a soon arriving and a far-reaching echo and fulfillment and implication. What the prophecy describes echoes forward throughout the centuries to speak of Yeshua, the branch, who'd be extended from heaven to the earth and who he would prophesy would remove iniquity from the land in one day. Now think about this. Jesus then becomes the olive branch that heaven would extend to humanity when heaven itself would become human and suffer and die in humanity's place, removing the iniquity of the land in a day, just as the prophet had foretold, in a single act of judgment and justice and love on a cross. It's in 1 Timothy, you might remember chapter 2, verse 5, where it says, there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. And there in that moment was Jesus, suspended on a cross between heaven and earth, connecting God with man, connecting heaven and earth once again. Jesus becomes in that moment the olive branch extended from heaven to us when his arms would be outstretched on a cross, dying in our place. That's what the the name is, is meant to express to people, that we exist because of Jesus. We exist undoubtedly to worship Jesus, but we also exist to become an expression of Jesus, the extension of the branch, the olive branch. You see, the prophet Zechariah's concern was that the building of the temple of God was that so the olive branch, the the, the branch Jesus could arrive and reveal himself to the world by becoming the final lamb of God who'd take away the sin of the world. And we today at this church, we're not concerned about constructing a building or, or a brand, but about building our lives as Jesus followers. 
that the life and love of Christ might live again through us, reconciling the world back to God. We believe that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that he is building his church with living stones, with our lives. So for us, as we slow down in this series to look at God's continued work, we will talk about what Jesus does immediately after rising from the dead, but at the same time, we will tie in what God is doing in the church age and even with our church specifically. So this morning, first, real quick, what Jesus is doing right after the resurrection, what you find in this story. You could say it this way, what, what is the what happens next for Jesus? Well, the story takes place on the evening of the resurrection itself. However, it's clear that not everyone is convinced that Jesus is alive. Word is not yet out, and people have not yet seen evidence that he's risen from the dead. There was an angel that greeted the women at the tomb, telling them that Jesus was alive. The other gospels make it clear, John's gospel specifically, that Mary Magdalene was visited by Jesus, the risen Savior. And then that Matthew's gospel tells us three more women were greeted by Jesus, and now these two individuals, we don't really know much about, who are traveling away from Jerusalem, away from the place that it had all happened, and they're headed in the wrong direction, you could say walking far from the place where all of their hopes were buried. We only know one of their names, Cleopas. The other remains unnamed. But the story brings some amazing things to the surface that I think are worth you thinking through, not the least of which is the risen Savior is seen in this moment. After defeating death and and, and the power of the grave, Jesus presents himself alive in this moment. Remember, if the story had ended with a cross and an occupied tomb, it's more than just a sad story. It's a hopeless story, and it's the hopelessness that they're feeling in this moment. In fact, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he would talk about just how hopeless it would be if Christ had not risen when he'd say it this way in verse 14. He says, and if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. And, verse 17, he says, you are still guilty and dead in your sin. These two people seem to be feeling the weight and reality of that. They're crushed, believing that they're living in this horrendous reality of a Messiah who they wrongfully trusted because his body lays, beginning to decay in a grave, they think. It's beautiful, though, that although they're helplessly and hopelessly walking away from Jesus, isn't it beautiful that Jesus is seen walking after them? That though they're walking away, in a sense, from Jesus, from the place where he had been laid, that Jesus is determined to walk after them. My friend, I don't know where you came in tonight, and if you feel like maybe this, these individuals kind of embody your moments or your week, where you're overwhelmed and you feel like them, where crushed or your dreams have been crushed and your hopes have been lost, and you're finding yourself in your own heart pushing further and further away from him in distrust, thinking maybe he's not who I thought he was. Beautiful thing is that though they're walking from Jesus, Jesus is walking after them, and the same is true for you. One commentator I read, he referred to them as having viewed the whole of God's story through the wrong end of a telescope, that that was the issue. That for so many people, they were looking for a Messiah who would set them free from suffering, but the one that heaven would send would be someone, Jesus, who would set them free by suffering. That's what Jesus would do. And as we discussed even just a week ago, for so many people, they would miss out on Jesus' true identity because they had ignored the prophecies of a suffering servant while at the same time choosing to embrace the prophecies of a conquering righteous judge and king. There was no room for suffering, though, in that image of a conquering king. There'd be no room for death nor for resurrection in that imagery. There are these prophetic, in a sense, two faces, these these dueling entities that are described for you about when Messiah comes in the Old Testament by the prophets, and they would present for us a suffering servant and a conquering king, but what they present for you is two different arrivals. The first time Jesus would arrive on Palm Sunday, not as a king, but as a lamb for sacrifice. What they had looked for was simply the king on a white horse, and they didn't find him. But now as Jesus is on the road with them for that seven-mile journey, 
Jesus would begin, it says, to open the scriptures to them. This is beautiful. Revealing that it had all, always been all about him. What he revealed to them is that it had all, always been all about him. In fact, look again in your Bible, if you'd please, Luke 24, beginning in verse 25, where it says, Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Just push pause. Take your mind to this moment. Beginning at Moses, Moses is responsible for the first five books of the Old Testament. It's saying that Jesus hit rewind and took their minds all the way back to the way that things began. I mean, it began in Eden itself, didn't it? The promise. Not just a promise of a Messiah, but a Messiah who would suffer. It's the third chapter of the book. It's where God promises that he would send someone that he himself, in fact, would come. And that he would crush the serpent's head, but in doing so, he himself would be wounded. The third chapter, the echo is coming. The shadow of the cross is already being, being cast over those ancient prophecies. Maybe it's that Jesus then hop, skipped, and jumped forward to Abraham and began talking about in Genesis chapter 22, when God tells Abraham, take your son, your only son, up on top Mount Moriah and offer your son as a sacrifice for me. And you remember that that story would echo to a father who would give his only son on that same mountain, atop that same mountain, Jesus would die. And Abraham, Abraham would not have overpowered his son. No, his son was a willing, complicit individual in the whole act, just as Jesus was not overpowered or duped or tricked. The difference is that in Abraham's story, God would intervene and tell the father, it's too much. It's, it, I won't ask it of you. Instead, I will provide myself as a sacrifice. He would provide then a scapegoat. He'd provide an animal that would die there on that day. But for Jesus, Jesus himself would remain on a cross and give his life. Maybe in that moment, Jesus would hop, skip, and jump forward and begin to talk about the time that the children of Israel were in Egypt. And in Exodus chapter 12, that he began to talk about the Passover and the real meaning of the Passover story. Where every home would take an unblemished lamb, perfect and spotless, into their home. And every home would feel the tension of a father taking that lamb outside of the house after it had been in the home and with the family. And you picture kids crying and a, and a, and a wife and a mother very upset with him that he's causing such commotion, but he's taking it aside to take its life as a sacrifice and substitute. And the blood of that animal would be placed over the doorpost of their home so that the judgment of God would pass over. And in that moment, Jesus is telling them, but, oh, the Messiah had long been foreshadowed in that moment. And on this Passover, think of what just happened. A Messiah who suffered as the Lamb of God who'd take away the sin of the world. I wonder if it's right after that moment where then as the children of Israel leave, you remember they're out in the wilderness and they're dying of thirst. And they say, did you bring us here to die? And Moses leads them to some waters. They drink it and it's bitter. So they called the place Mara, which in Hebrew means bitter. But then Moses casts in the tree, and when he does, the bitter waters are miraculously made sweet. What a picture of the cross. Did he fast forward and hop, skip, and jump to the story of those serpents who came and plagued the encampment of Israel? And every time someone was bitten, they were injected with the sentence of death from that serpent. Poison was injected into them. But then when Moses, instructed by God, would take a serpent and wrap it around a stick, a bronze thing that he would lift into the air, then everyone who would look on faith at the one who was lifted up, at the one who would embody the curse, would be healed from the sting of death. What a beautiful, crazy picture that all of a sudden is being displayed as Jesus is playing all these scenes out for them, beginning at Moses and walking all the way through the prophets. It's him reaching Psalm 22, I'm sure, and beginning to talk about the one who felt forsaken would cry out that he was forsaken and that his hands and his feet would be pierced. And there he would wait for his father to respond and his father would. For he'd finish that psalm by saying, you would not forsake your own. Oh, it's Isaiah who would start, the prophet would start with early prophecies about a king who had come triumphantly, but by the end of what he'd write, he's talking about a suffering servant. 
would be whipped and beaten and bruised for our transgression, for our iniquity. Jesus is walking them through these moments as Jesus is walking along this seven-mile stretch. You picture him on the road for two, three hours, maybe longer even, unpacking all of Scripture, talking maybe even about the law in general, saying even the law itself was not meant to be given for you to try to judge yourself or compare yourself to it and say, look, I'm justified. Look how good I am or how great I've done. No, the law functions as a mirror. That's what the New Testament teaches us, to show us our flaws and brokenness. And it functions as a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ so that no flesh is justified by the law. It showed us how deeply broken we are. What did Jesus talk to these people through? What was he walking through in the scriptures with them as they walked along that road? See, the book, the book, your Bible, is all about Jesus from cover to cover, The Old Testament is about anticipation. The Gospels are about manifestation. The book of Acts is about the proclamation. The epistles are about explanation. And Revelation is about consummation. The book is all about Jesus. You remember probably Jesus' own words in John chapter 5, where the religious leaders are so very angry at him, determined even to kill him. And his response was, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me but you're not willing to come to me that you might have life. These are those who speak of me. Or another translation, the scriptures are what points to me. They bear witness about me. These are the very words that testify about me. On that long, dusty road, Jesus would open the scriptures to them, revealing that it had all, always been all about him. Okay, now here's the question for you. It's not a trick question. But when were their eyes opened? When in the process? He walked along the road for a couple of hours, but it wasn't until they got to their destination and something happened that opened their eyes. It says that Jesus blessed and broke. We picture them now around a table and there's a meal being served and it was that action. In fact, they would testify to others, but then we saw him bless and break. It's something we've seen Jesus do two other times already in the Gospels, haven't we? At the feeding of the 5,000, remember this is the very terminology that's used for what Jesus does in that moment publicly. He blessed and broke. It's the very thing Jesus would do also at the Last Supper, surrounded by his friends around the table. He'd lift that matzah, that unleavened bread, and say, this is my body that's given for you. And this is my blood. He would lift the glass and say of the new covenant, my blood poured out for you for the remission of sins. He would bless it and break it, it says. In that moment, it was like every piece fell into place. That moment made them realize that it was Jesus who stood before them alive from the dead. And it was the scriptures that made them realize just how significant that was. Yes, he was alive from the dead. Yes, that proved that he was more than a man. And the scriptures that Jesus had just walked them backwards through answered the question, well, well then, who and what is he? The scriptures have explained it all. And, And I'll just tell you, this is why the scriptures matter so much to us because they still answer our question that's just that. Well, then who or what is he and what is he going to do? The book answers that. In fact, it's beautiful. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, he said it this way, writing about the significance of this moment. He said, for the disciples, the Emmaus road was the discovery that the long curse had been broken, that death itself had been defeated, that God's new creation brimming with life and joy and new possibility has burst in upon the world of decay and of sorrow. My friends, if you're crushed and despairing today, then this moment and this story, this encounter of Jesus invites you to rediscover the presence and power of Jesus in your life. Because we believe that Jesus finds us like he found these people. He finds us disoriented and hopeless, bewildered in life and lost without a remedy, and that God miraculously in those moments breaks into our life, revealing himself to us and rescuing us as only he can. We're talking about God's continued work, and this is the first thing that we see Jesus doing as a risen Savior. 
is begin revealing himself to people and revealing that it has all always been all about him all throughout history and all throughout the scripture. So that's what happens next. Now, the implication of that. If this is true, if this is what happened, then what does this mean for God's continued work? Because I told you as we started, it's not just that God's work was happening through the body of Jesus, but it's that God's work will continue now in the church age through the body of Christ, the people of God. God continues his work through the church. And the church throughout the ages, if you look at church history, adopted the view that Jesus had of Scripture, believing that it has all, always been all about him. In fact, the apostles in the book of Acts, they're seen exemplifying this, aren't they? Because when they begin to preach, it talks again and again about them reaching back to the law and the prophets to show their audience that it was all, always, all about Jesus. It would not just be what they would do publicly, but it would be the apostles' writings, what we have recorded for us in the New Testament as epistles. They make it clear that they adopted Jesus' view of Scripture, that it was all, always, all about him. And since the apostles, all throughout church history, this book has been the primary means that Jesus is revealed to us in the primary way that God speaks to us about who he is and what he's doing. You know, there's some movies that you see, and you'll watch a movie all the way through, and then when you get to the end, the whole thing becomes reframed by the climax and the final moment of that unfolding story that you've been following and experiencing. Okay, if you're familiar with the movie, I'm not recommending it, so I don't need to be reprimanded later, but if you've seen The Sixth Sense, it's a movie that you probably watched twice because it fits this description. Again, I'm not recommending the movie and I didn't want to spoil it or don't want to spoil it for you because it's an amazing moment when you're shocked and surprised by the end of the movie when the main character, Bruce Willis, you actually realize the whole time he's been dead. And that's an amazing moment that I wouldn't want to ruin for you. But when you finish that movie, you find yourself now suddenly feeling the urge to go back and review the whole thing because it's reframed everything that you thought you understood and thought you were seeing, because now you're realizing I was all along missing the biggest point of the story. Throughout the whole of the movie, throughout the whole of the story, I was missing the whole point of it. And then you find yourself going back to the beginning, maybe even right on the heels of it, in order to watch it again and, and have your mind blown as you're seeing the true story that was unfolding before you that you had failed to see all along. I want you to hear me say this. The church throughout the ages has viewed scripture this way. The church throughout the ages believed that what Jesus does on the road to Emmaus changes everything about how, how Judeo-Christian world looks at ancient scripture. That we believe that all of this is always, it's always been all about Jesus. For us, it makes us want to jump back into reread the story through the lens of the climax of the story, a cross and an empty tomb, and the newfound understanding, again, that it's all always been all about him. You see, God's continuing his work, and it's important that we see what Jesus does right on the heels of resurrection, and it's what we find him doing on Emmaus. It's important then we ask a second question. What does that mean for the church age? We just answered that. The church now sees scripture so very differently. The Judeo-Christian worldview looks at it through the lens of Christ himself. But what does this mean then for our church, for Olive Branch, for the local expression of God's work? You see, our church is just that. It's just this tiny piece of what God is continuing to do through his body in this brief moment of history that we find ourselves in. We're just one little local expression of God's love and commitment and continued work in the world. In every church throughout the ages, we share some things in common, at least this, as a mission statement. We at least share a mission statement that God has commissioned us, Jesus himself has said it, that the point of the whole of the message of God is to love God and love people. Remember, we walked through this in Mark's gospel where Jesus was approached by someone who said, what's the point of it all? What's the greatest commandment? What's the essence of Christianity? And Jesus would boil it down to love. Love for God and love for neighbor. Every follower of Jesus, every person, and every move of God that is a community of believers, a church that gather in his name, share this same mission statement that we are meant to love God and love people. 
that that's what Jesus has commissioned us to do. Now, the beauty is that the Christian message is that we have a God who loved his enemies and even gave his life for his enemies. And now we, the beloved of God, are enabled to love like God has loved us. And so we are commissioned by him to go love like he did. It's this beautiful work that God is doing in the world. Now, every church will strategically look to do just this, to fulfill Jesus' mission statement that he's given to us as his followers, but will probably look, every church will look a bit different in how they will strategically try to do that. And for us at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship, we're non-denominational. We call ourselves a Jesus-loving Bible church that's led by a team of elders. In fact, you heard from one of them earlier and his wife. It's myself, it's Danny Jack, it's Pepper Lawrence, it's Dave Van Hook, and it's John Boyd. And our goal in a nutshell for this church is to help people to cultivate a loving relationship with God through Jesus Christ that would reshape their life and also their community. Our goal is to see God reshape lives because we believe that every person's life is already being shaped and formed by things around us. Okay, think with me about this for a moment. We're all being formed. We're being formed by the culture that surrounds us. We're formed by the family that we come from. We're formed by the friends that we spend time with. We're formed even by the apps we have on our our phones. We're formed even by the commercials and the content that we take in, that we observe. So we have to be aware of who and what we allow into our lives, who and what we are following because we're formed by those things. This is not a new concept. In fact, it's something throughout the ages of the church that took on different terms or different verbiage was used for it. It's not a new concept at all. Humanity has always known that all of us are being formed by all that goes on around us. Now, here's the truth, though. None of us want to admit that it's true about ourselves, but we could easily point out where it's true about other people. I have the friend who watched, true story, who watched the commercial of the truck, the brand new truck in slow motion as it's sliding across, like, you know, they hose down the beautiful, serene spot. They hose it down right before they start filming. So it's slowly in the slow motion shot, it's throwing water off the back wheel well as it comes around the corner with the light glimmering off of it. I have the friend who was so formed and impacted by that that he got in the car without even saying a word to his wife, went to the dealer and drove it home. My friend's still paying for that. It wasn't me. This is not an I have a friend. You can fact check with Lindsay. I don't drive a truck. I'd like to, and I love those commercials, but it's not me. You know, it's, it's easy for us, well, we're in denial that our family's quirks have rubbed off on us, but it's easy for us to look at another family and say, gosh, they all have that same quirk, don't they? Because they've all been formed as members of that family to share some of those quirks. We're all aware of the culture that someone grew up in because their accent is a dead giveaway. Let's just be honest. We've realized in the last couple of years that if you sit with someone even for an hour, you can start to make at least an educated guess at least at which network they're consuming their news from when you just listen to the way that they talk about what's happening in the world. It's true. In fact, in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Scripture itself seems to teach us very clearly that this is what's happening in our lives, that we are constantly being formed into something by forces around us. Whereas Scripture then invites us to be reformed, to be transformed by Jesus. And what we're transformed into is into the image of Jesus. We're made more like him and less like the world. In fact, think of Jesus' triumphant statement at the end of the book. It's that he stands up and says, behold, I've made all things new again. That this is what Jesus is doing in creation. That this is is even what Jesus is doing in our lives. And so for us as a church, this is our heart's desire, is that we want to help people to cultivate a loving relationship with God through Jesus Christ that would reshape their life and their community around them. And we attempt to do that by emphasizing four core values that you probably hear us speak of often. 
You see, we function as a church in a sense where we're aiming at these things as if they were targets. The first is perspective, that we want us to be impacted with renewed thinking. The second is mission, that we want us to find a renewed purpose that comes from knowing Jesus. The third is community, that we want us to experience renewed relationships, that we find ourselves in a community to experience life in Jesus together with. All of that is building to that fourth core value, and that is discipleship, that we're looking for renewed lives. We want transformation in the whole of of who and what we are, and a renewed life is what we experience as Jesus begins to renew our thinking, which gives us a renewed sense of purpose in the world that we then fulfill alongside of our renewed relationships in the community called his bride, the church. And so our goal as followers of Jesus is likeness to Jesus. And the outworking of likeness to Jesus is loving God and loving people. It's looking outside of ourselves and beyond ourselves. And we're growing, we believe, into that form, the form of Jesus. It's what in the first century they called apprenticeship or discipleship. We're choosing to follow him, to be formed into him together collectively as a church. Now, I'm hoping that this is not the first time you're hearing this, and I'm hoping that none of this sounds like new things to you, but that that you, even if you don't have language for it, are going, yeah, this is, I guess, what I see when I look around our church and our community. And really briefly, what I want to do is just just as we wrap up, talk about the first of those four core values, because we'll take one each week from the stories that we're looking at in these final moments of the life of Jesus on planet Earth before he ascends into heaven. And this first one is found in, its roots are found in this moment on the story and along the road to Emmaus, and that's perspective, that we want renewed thinking, and so we gather, because that's our desire, we gather to encounter God and connect people to a right perspective about God, about themselves, and about the world around them. In fact, this is our primary goal at our Sunday gathering is to impact perspective, the perspective we have on God, ourselves, and the world around us. This is why our Sunday gathering is built around a time of corporate worship. This is why every Sunday we offer the opportunity for our church to pray together every Sunday before our corporate worship. And sometimes you've even noticed during our corporate gathering, we also do that. But it's also why we spend so much time in scripture together. Because we believe that that's where we find this happening, our minds and hearts aligning with his, our renewing of our mind, where we see God, ourselves, and the world around us differently because of what we encounter that's recorded for us in this book. In fact, this story is kind of the roots of a line of thinking about the way that we view the Bible and teach the Bible called expositional preaching. To expose or exposit what's there is what Jesus did along that road. And if you've been around for long, you know that Bible teaching is a big deal for us. And us teaching you through a book of the Bible to expose what's there and show you what we believe is the beauty of Jesus is our goal on a Sunday. And it maybe takes a little longer than you'd like sometimes. And for that, I'm sorry. Uh, But it is a beautiful thing, and and you've probably already learned if you've been with us long that really every Sunday message is the same. You probably know this by now, right? Because every message, every passage we're in, every time we open scripture, in the end, it all is presenting a portrait for us to view the beauty of Jesus and his great grace for us. If you've come on any Sunday, I'd be disappointed if you walked out and said, I learned a lot or we talked a lot, but, but Jesus was not a part of that because I think all of the book has always been all about him. And so every week we should leave enamored with Jesus because our goal is truly not scripture. Our goal, excuse me, is not uh, learning scripture or just being informed. Our goal is seeing and knowing and encountering Jesus because he said, you search the scriptures for in them, you think that you have life, but you've missed it because they spoke of me all along. This is why I would also say, I think that you having private time in scripture and in prayer, spending time with Jesus is so very important. You see, this book, what it displays for us is is a just and loving, gracious God who has loved us at great cost to himself. And this book tells me that you and I were made in his image. And as image bearers, we have intrinsic value. But it tells us a simultaneous reality that exists inside each one of us that yes, made in the image of God, Yes, intrinsic value, but also now broken, sinful, fallen nature. 
And because of that, we, we have a bent to us and a brokenness in us. We are fractured and splintered. And that's true that sin has done that more than just in society or culture. Sin has done that inside of each of us. Yes, I'm made in the image of God, capable of love and beauty and grace, but also now have a sinful fallen nature that corrupts and distorts what God had created and called so good. And I wish I naturally had a right perspective on things, but as a broken, sinful, fallen person who lives in a broken, sinful, fallen world, I'm now pre-wired as a son of Adam with a sinful and twisted view of God, view of myself, and view of my neighbor. And I realized that if I implied that that was true of you too, that's terribly offensive. It's neither politically correct nor socially acceptable, but it's precisely how the scriptures describe both of us. Think of it like a car that's out of alignment, that naturally pulls you towards the edge of the road, that's naturally pulling you towards destruction. So also, my heart is messy and naturally pulls me down pathways towards destruction. The difference, though, between me and the car is that the car needs the realignment job because the car typically is out of alignment because of something outside of itself. It hit a curb. It it sunk into a pothole at a a high rate of speed. But I'm different than that car in that it didn't take something outside of me to make me pull towards destruction. It's something that's so deeply broken inside of me. And Jesus believed, in fact, that my condition was so bad that mere reform was not an option. Only rebirth could get me realigned to see things the way that he did. See, this is why we often say that the gospel is terribly offensive because it tells me I'm far worse than I had imagined. And yet it's so very beautiful because it simultaneously tells me I'm far more loved than I'd ever hoped or dreamed. I have to learn through the scriptures to see God clearly, to see myself clearly, and to see others around me the way that he does. Now, hear me say this. I will only see others right once I begin to understand how indebted I am to God for all that he has done for me. And I will only see myself right once I begin to see the depths of my sin and how great a depth God was willing to plunge to rescue me, that I am completely sinful and self-destructive and at enmity with God because I rebel against him, deserving of judgment and yet loved. And he willingly gave himself for me, broken enough that he needed to die, loved enough that he was willing to die for me. Oh, and I will only see God right once I begin to see how he was revealed in the pages of this book. And the book tells me, in the story we read today, that all of it has always been all about Jesus. Again, my friends, our goal is not scripture knowledge as a church. It's knowing Jesus and becoming more like him. That is our goal and why we emphasize the scriptures so strongly as a church. Okay, we'll, we'll wrap up, but let me just throw a couple things, if this is true, that you should chew on. If this is true, then I believe that the more literal you take the book, the more liberal you are meant to become in our love and compassion for the world. The more liberally, the more generously we should extend grace and, and dispense love and compassion to our neighbors. See, sin is destructive, and we won't redefine what God has called sin, what he's called rebellious and destructive. I'm not saying we do that at all. But we will constantly strive, if we take the book literally, we will constantly strive to love and care for this broken world we engage with rather than standing back in disgust or detachment from the world. May I remind you that we never should pick up a Bible and carry it like a sword into a field that's ready for harvest and that is not a battleground. We have one enemy, and it's not a person. It's a deceiver who, from the beginning, had a failed coup attempt in heaven and brought it to the earth to hurt God by hurting the ones he loved by leading them astray with him. This book is such a gift, and and you might remember that Jesus says that the kingdom of God, it's like leaven, that when implanted beneath the surface begins to permeate every bit of the loaf in the same way the kingdom of God at work in my life is going to permeate, move throughout all that I am, and when it does, it undoubtedly collides with my brokenness and sinfulness. It tells me I'm wronged and simultaneously that I'm loved. 
And it's my choice in that moment to yield to Jesus and allow him to reshape my attitudes and affections. Do you hear me that the byproduct of the gospel is humility and confidence? Humility because I have to admit that I'm wrong and broken, and yet confidence because I see that I have so much value to God and am loved by him that he'd give at such great expense to have me. My friends, our church is not a product to evaluate. It's an invitation to participate with Jesus. And the work that he wants to do in your life and in our community here and outside of our walls, to join with the worship of God and the work and mission of God. And if we begin to develop a right perspective about God, myself, and the world around me, then it's going to lead us to jump headlong into the mission of God for the world around me. And that's where we'll pick up next week. So to land the plane, I just want to go back to where we began. Let's go full circle. To go full circle, back to the story of the guys walking along the road to Emmaus. If you're crushed and despairing as they were in that moment, then this story invites you to rediscover the presence and power of Jesus at work in your life. If you're not crushed and despairing, but you come here, I want you to know I think you're meant to find yourself in the story still on the road to Emmaus. Still make your way along that road, road, joining someone else on their Emmaus road journey. Joining someone else when they're hopeless and disoriented, walking bewildered with disappointment, hurt, and hard questions. Join with them in that journey. Walk with them and love them. Be patient with them and care for them and point them to the reality of a risen Savior. It's amazing in the story, we really don't know the identities of these two people. There's lots and lots of speculation throughout church history, but we're not clear as to who they were. We know only that one of them was referred to in the story as Cleopas. Cleopas literally and very beautifully means the joy or glory of the Father. What a name. The joy and glory of the Father. The man who left Jerusalem that day was devastated, discouraged. Everything he had come to believe in had come crashing down on that one day. All of his hope was buried in the tomb, but the one that Jesus found was the one that he called Cleopas, the glory and joy of the Father. Please hear me, this is the gospel. That Jesus takes the hopeless and gives them hope. That Jesus takes the joyless and gives them joy and purpose again. That though they walked away from him, Jesus walked after them and referred to him as the joy and glory of the Father. Although it's true that you and I are sinful and broken, rebellious against the Father, it's equally simultaneously true that the Father loves you, that he loves me still. That we are the joy of the Father. Scripture says, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus would endure the cross. That joy would be the fulfillment of the eternal plan of God. Since before creation had begun, that the lamb was slain, that was ma- the mind of God was made up. The joy was the fulfillment of that plan. The joy was found in his submission to his father and in rescuing you. We are the the Father's joy and glory. This is the gospel. This is the way that God sees broken, sinful, fallen people. This is the way that God rescues broken, sinful, fallen people. This is the way that God loves me as a broken, sinful, fallen people. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.